0: I am definitely the person that people contact when the work is very strange. I am, I am the person for your weird, wacky, bizarre, surreal, or horror, fill in the blank. Can I have actors to places? Stand by for curtain call. go. Stand by for cross lights.
1: Good.
0: That's a wrap. Good show, everybody.
1: Welcome to Echo Offstage: Theater Women Speak. Echo Theater Dallas has been amplifying women's voices on stage since 1998. Now, we invite you offstage, behind the curtain, for an intimate conversation with theater's most influential and innovative women. I'm your host, Katherine Whiteman, and I'm here with Danielle Giorgio. Welcome to the show, Danielle. Thank you so much. I'm thrilled to have an opportunity to talk to you today, and I'm going to give some bullet points for our listeners Danielle is a dancer, choreographer, director, actor, intimacy, and fight director, writer, filmmaker, teacher, and artistic director. But wait, folks, there's more. (laughs) Founding artistic director of Danielle Giorgio Dance Group, which has received numerous awards, including three times Best Dance Troupe Awards from the Dallas Observer and Outstanding Female Director from Critical Rant for Danielle. Former Associate Artistic Director at the Undermain Theater. As a choreographer, intimacy director, movement coach, and fight choreographer, her work has been seen at AT AT&T Performing Arts Center, Theater 3, Stage West, Undermain, Kitchen Dog, Echo Theater, and many, many others. So it sounds like I've done the whole thing and we don't need to do this interview, but folks, there (laughs) is still more. (laughs) (laughs) Let's get into the thing that is the life around all of these... um, wonderful accomplishments. So this way I don't have to make you brag on yourself. Let's talk about how you got there.
0: (laughs) I kind of came into all of this in a strange way, sort of in kind of way, like a backwards way into getting into theater and dance in a professional setting. Um, I mean, I dance my whole life. My, my parents put me in dance classes when I was able to walk. So dance has always been a part of my life, but I left it in after high school. I was like, I'm, I'm not going to do this. And I was doing musicals and I was very active in uh, my high school theater program. And I just didn't want to do it anymore. And it took me about one semester in college to change my mind. (laughs) And I started dancing. I went to the University of Texas at Arlington and I joined every dance class that I could there and I joined the dance company and I eventually became a student teacher and then I became the assistant director and then I became director of that dance company and helped the company become actually a part of the academic programs there. And now they've got a dance minor. And it's an active part of their theater department. So my journey into all of this was really refinding myself through academia, actually. And then I started dancing professionally. But my degrees are wild. Like I have my 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 bachelor's is in international business and French and my master's degree is in political science with an emphasis on on arts policy and and nonprofit and public policy. And then my my doctorate is in humanities, aesthetic studies. And that's where my performance studies came into play. And I am a nerdy little academic who loves dance history and contemporary performance practices. Yeah. Uh, if, if
1: that's an incredible arc, you know what I mean? From from making the decision to, nah, I'm through with that part of my life, to having it come back and grab you and say, no, you may be through with us, but we're not through with you. Exactly. <laughs> yeah, and then all of the various interests, and I've got to assume from the richness of the, the art that you produce, that all of that stuff informs, informs your work. So I want to ask you, what does dance theater mean for you?
0: For me, dance theater is this incredible, it almost, and I hate to use this term, but sort of like perfect example of what theater in the contemporary world could be because it's using elements of so many different dramatic effects to tell a story. And it's very much rooted in humanity and wanting to talk about the human experience, which if we go back in theater history is is what theater was built on and attempting to do, provide this mirror to society where we could watch ourselves through the safety of a dramatic lens and understand our innate desires, um, the violence that lives inside of us, trauma, and to reach catharsis and dance theater in a way that sort of neutralizes an environment because it is using movement and physical storytelling as its primary device, helps people from whatever their background is understand a story. Yeah. And for me, as I'm a first-generation Cypriot American, my, my parents immigrated here in the 80s, but English was not my first language, and I grew up in a bilingual household. So sometimes for me language, translating things into a spoken language can be a challenge. And dance, movement, physical action helps me personally understand what I'm hearing. And I think that if you talk to more people, they say, well, I understood it because I could physically watch this person do it. And sometimes the words wash right over me, but the physicality remains. And dance theater is just a great way to do that.
1: That's fascinating because I I think that I heard you say or imply that you are a kinesthetic learner, which would make so much sense for you as a dancer. But I think I also heard you sort of allude to the fact that when you boil everything down to our most important connection, we don't need language to understand what a dance means. We don't need language to have music move us or art move us. We just need to have the images that pulls those things out of us that are the things that unite us. And I just, I, I, I'm, I'm, I love that. <laughs> I think that's <laughs> wonderful. So I want to talk to you a little bit about that PhD in humanities aesthetic studies. Your dissertation focused on the intersection of contemporary dance and avant-garde experimental theater just a little bit. (laughs) What drew you to that particular intersection?
0: I think it really started with my fascination with the Weimar period in Germany, when the birth of German Expressionism and the Bauhaus movement. So when I started my PhD journey, my time at UT Dallas, I fell in love with German studies I took every class that I could to learn about German filmmaking and, like, this birth of urbanization. And there's this idea that came out of the, the Weimar Republic about the masculine woman and this idea of the new woman. So, like, post-World War One and World War Two, there was this, like, rebirth of what it meant to be a woman and what a woman looked like. And, and there are these, like, bizarre characterizations that, and, and, like, actual, like, graphs and charts of, like body types and what that meant. And it was like, like, now we have like, oh, everything is about your astrological side. But during the Weimar period, it was like, does your body look like this? Well, if you are shaped like this, and you're this type of woman, and that means you should do this type of work. And I became fascinated by that. And what really stuck out to me was this masculine woman or this new woman who made her own money worked was the primary financial source and educational source of her own being. And that was sort of this inspiration for me as coming coming up as a choreographer. And that was like the type of physicality that I wanted to explore and playing with gender and gender binaries inside of what is constituted as a quote-unquote female form. So I just fell in love with German expressionism. And then I started this very intense relationship with Pina Bausch's work, who is considered the creator or the person who defined dance theater.
1: Hmm. So I have a huge curiosity about who it was that determined what constituted a masculine woman. And I'm wondering if that person was in fact a woman or if that person was a man.
0: It was a man. Really? <laughs> it was <Stunning>. a man. <laughs> um, and it was a doctor. Um, so it was very much based uh, they, for them, very, very much based in like this medical science. And then women, uh, female writers were, were blowing it up. <laughs> As much
1: as they could at that time. Um. <laughs> wow. Yeah, that, that's fascinating uh, to have sort of as a foundation for the things that you're doing now is, and maybe we can get a little bit more into this, but when you see something like that and you know that it is not something that is authentic to a woman, then I don't know, maybe it's just me being subversive, but I would be all about blowing that up. So yeah, I get it. Yeah. I'm 64 years old. And I remember reading articles as I was growing up written about women by men with such presumption that even then when I was a young girl, it's like, that's not how I act. That's not who I am. <laughs> so I can imagine someone like you with much more freedom that, you know, that, that, that you would have right now looking at something like that and going, the what? <laughs>
0: Yeah. When I first read about this idea of the masculine woman, I was like, oh, no one's ever defined me before. Cool. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Because like if you read it, I was like, I I was like that. Well, that's me. Oh, okay. Yeah. Mm, yep, That's me, too. Um, And then like when people define or when those writers and were defining what the femme fatale was, I was like, yeah, that's also me. Oh boy. I wouldn't have made it through this time period. I would have, you know, they would have not allowed me to continue living. (laughs) (laughs) And so it's just like, it's very, very interesting. Uh, And how those ideas, I mean, they still exist today. Ideas from the thirties and forties just really haven't changed. And from Europe over to America. So, Mm
1: -hmm. Uh, um, so you've, you've, Absolutely piques my curiosity. And so now I'm going to have to go and read some of these books. Was was the term considered derogatory, the masculine woman? Yes. Yeah. 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 So we were just supposed to be simpering idiots.
0: Basically. Yeah. Housewives.
1: Oh, yeah. 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 So preserving that service for Mm -hmm. us. Okay. Mm -hmm. That's lovely. All right. Yeah. I think (laughs) before I get too excited here, I think we better get back to the show. So you are the first choreographer that we've had the pleasure of having on the podcast. Awesome. (laughs) And as someone who works in dance and theater, help our listeners understand, what are the differences between the two art forms and what can they learn from each other?
0: I mean, truly, they're very, very much tied together. When you look at theater history, dance has been there from the beginning. The ancient Greeks used movement as the basis of their theatrical plays. It's written in there with the chorus. That's the foundation of Greek theater. I mean, there's a whole movement genre based upon Elizabethan forms and Shakespearean shapes. Like, it's always been there. And I mean, past that, like past the more advanced civilization, whatever you want to say about that, we started with dance. That was our, um, as humans who didn't have codified language, we had movement, we had dance, we had movement that we shared And that was the only way that we could share our culture was by traveling and sharing the dances that we did. So they've always been there. They've always been there for each other. Um, And I think they will always exist with each other. I don't think they really can exist without each other. Some dance people might feel differently about that, but dance is inherently theatrical. It relies on all those dramatic devices to create experiences. And the more you understand how to use Aristotelian thoughts (laughs) in your choreography, the stronger your story becomes. Even as a choreographer, you don't think you're telling a story. You are. Um, It just might be abstract. And it could be about shapes and it could be about air or it could be about the feeling of your toe connecting to the floor. There's still a story there. So for me, there is no difference between dance and theater. I think that they need each other to survive. And I don't know, I just, for for me personally, they are interconnected and I try not to say, oh, I'm just a dancer. Oh, I'm just an actor. And whatever that means to you, <laughs> I construct stories that sometimes are set to music. Sometimes they're not.
1: And sometimes they move this way, and mm-hmm. sometimes they, yeah. I really appreciate that you don't separate them. I think that as human beings, we have a tendency to want to have have everything have a category. Mm-hmm. And then those categories become silos. And yes. they become things that are mutually exclusive. And the, the fact that you won't separate them, that you do say they come from a common foundation, they have to feed on each other, I think really helps me and, and hopefully our listeners understand why it is that you're so passionate about what you do. So Echo audiences will remember your work from when you choreographed Her Song. Would you tell us a little bit about that project?
0: Sure. Um, I think that was the first Her Song, I believe. And that was a cool experience for me because I knew Echo and everyone through the Fit Festival Uh, Festival Independent Theater is that like that was my first like introduction. So it was really nice to be invited to choreograph her song, um, because it was one of the first actual like choreography gigs that I got with a professional theater. I had had some experiences before, but I like I was like starting to build my career. And this was like, a musical and it was new and there were no rules. And so we were like defining everything together in that room and creating the world of the show. And that was really interesting for me. And sort of this like first foray for me into developing new work with a team of artists. And I had a great time. It was so much fun and it was beautiful. And it's that like big band Era of music too is something that I've always gravitated towards. So, it was it was lovely, and I've developed like long time relationships with performers and uh, creatives from that show.
1: There are so many people that if you if you say to them, "What do you remember best about you know the early days of Echo?" Whatever, the first thing that comes up is her song because it was such an incredible experience for so yeah. many people. Yeah, and and those things. Change your life.
0: Yeah, you know when you they have really an experience
1: do. like that, they change your life. So you you decided to found your own dance company, maybe having had the experience at UT Arlington of sort of engendering this dance program. It's like, <laughs> hey, I can do, I can do this again. <laughs> I don't know, I don't know what your impulse was there, but I'd love to know what it was. So, what made you decide? Uh, you know, I'm I'm gonna I'm gonna start a dance theater company. <laughs>
0: I had absolutely no intention. I was a grad student. I was throwing myself out there, making, working on films, making dance films, doing choreography, dancing professionally. Like, I, I had no intention of doing this. I was invited by Vicky Meek to present a dance film I made at the National um, Performance Network's annual conference that was held in Dallas in 2010. And I was like, oh, this is going to be so cool. I'm going to present my work at this, like, big conference. And, like, as a grad student, that's, like, the goal, right? You you need to get out there, show your work, start establishing yourself as the artist that you want to be. And I was like, I am a choreographer. I make dance films. I'm a filmmaker. Look at this! Um And Cora Cardona, who founded Teatro Dallas, was there. And uh, (laughs) this story is is a bit like, it sounds like a movie, but so she was there. Um, This is like December 2010, late November, December 2010. I leave, I go to Ireland to hang out with some friends, make some art. I land in Dallas, January, 2011. My phone goes off. I have a voicemail from Cora Cardona offering me a show at her theater and it's a two week run of my work and i was like my work i, uh, I, I got weird little things uh some film uh, what and in the i was like yeah of course sure cuz i was young <laughs> this is before i knew like oh i should have like more in place before i just agree to do something i'm in a phone call with her and she said what's the name of your of your company i was like my company uh I don't know. My best friend was sitting next to me and she goes, Danielle, Giorgio, dance group. And I was like, yeah, what she said. Okay. And that was um, 11 years ago.
1: (laughs) You got to know what I'm going to say now. I love this story. (laughs) I love this story because, again, to me, it's like life was telling you, okay, this is what we're going to do next, Danielle. Buckle up. (laughs) Yep, <laughs> and it's been uh, eleven much. years.
0: <laughs> and like since that show, I mean, I didn't know what I was doing. I knew what it was like to be a dancer for somebody else. I had no idea how to do. I was like, "Why? Well, uh, I'm outside of an educational institution. Uh, who, who who does the lighting? Who does the, the stage management?" And so I am eternally grateful to Cora Cardona for holding my hand and teaching me how to do this. And it's, I mean, it's been 11 years and I I never thought that, like, trust me, little grad school Danielle that was like trying to figure out how she even got into a PhD program was never expected this to happen. And I just, I am incredibly lucky that I have been able to continue working and being able to have opportunities to tell stories that, I want
1: to tell them. Yeah. Well, and and to tell them in a way that caused that, yeah, what she said, dance company to become an (laughs) acclaim. To become an acclaimed uh, and and well respected dance company, so my my hat is absolutely off to you. It makes Thank me you. think, and when you said Cora's name, I immediately got I could hear Cora's voice in my head. Yeah, baby, but this is what we're gonna do, baby. <laughs> you yes. know, yes, yes, and that just makes me smile. That just makes <laughs> me smile. I want to talk a little bit more about Danielle Giorgio Dance Group. When you want to describe your work to someone. What words do you use? How do you say this is who we are? This is our through line. This is this is our aesthetic.
0: Mm-hmm. Uh, I mean, it really has evolved over the years. But what has always remained constant for me is that these are snapshots of humanity. And they are... So I sort of, like, as an artist live by this quote from samuel beckett that nothing is funnier than unhappiness and that has just i mean deep down I got, i'm an existentialist hey what can i say
1: live it love it
0: you know <laughs> um <laughs> when i discovered uh beckett and Sartre at too young of an age to be reading their work i was like oh yeah this is me and then nietzsche came along and i was like i'm gone i'm gonna go walk on this tightrope the The Mensch will one day discover me. This is, I am 100% a nerd. But that quote has never left me. And it is actually like a part of my artist statement. I want to address these very difficult topics through the lens of comedy. So everything about our work is very much real and very funny. It's dark. It's sad. And there's usually a song attached to it. And I don't know where that came from. But one day I was like, I guess we make musicals. as well. Yeah, as well. So yeah, they're, they're just a uh, super bizarre moments of the darkest parts of our humanity.
1: I don't remember where I read this, but there are always two mirrors on every life, the dark mirror mm-hmm. and the light mirror, and they mm-hmm. cannot exist without each other. Somebody's got to hold up that dark mirror because we have to process the things that we do as human beings in some way. And, um, I, I just, I think that it is important that somebody take on that challenge. So thank you for doing that. (laughs) You're welcome. (laughs) (laughs) Um, A couple more questions before we go to our break. Uh, Thinking about Cora just now made me want to ask, so obviously she was instrumental in starting your dance group, but do you have anyone that you think of as a a mentor as you were sort of making those decisions that put you where you are now?
0: I mean, Cora was... Very instrumental in that. Um, I have to thank Vicki Meek for, I mean, taking a chance on a very, very young artist and being there in my corner right at the beginning. Uh, I've been very lucky to have a lot of supportive women in the community. Um, I was a company member with Muscle Memory Dance Theater for about four years. And the women who directed, founded, and directed that company were very supportive of me, and they still are. Uh, we're now we're like colleagues at uh, in various different like academic institutions, but just like the professional world. And so, that's like an interesting full circle moment. And I've had a lot of support from women in the theater community, too. Catherine Owens, who was the artistic director of Undermain Theater, definitely. Uh, provided me with a lot of opportunities and a lot of trust. Tina Parker with Kitchen Dog has become a, a great uh, friend and uh, colleague. Um, Christy Vela has always the same. Uh, I've been very supportive, and so I think like it's I've I've been very lucky to have sort of entered into this community in this roundabout way and to have developed great relationships with people. And then, I mean, also like Kateri and Terry, (laughs) uh, when I was there with Echo and her song were always so wonderful and and kind and gracious. And I can look at these other artists and and I know that I could shoot them an email or, you know, call them up and they would take my, my call and, you know, offer as much advice and support as they can. Sounds like not so much a mentorship
1: as a sisterhood that has yeah. grown yeah. and, and through, through it all, you know, supported each other, which is, is also another wonderful way to think about the theater community. And, and that also puts a big smile on my face. You are also an intimacy director. And uh, for, for our listeners who may not be familiar with that term, can you tell us a little bit about how that operates in the world of theater and, and dance?
0: yeah so as the intimacy director or choreographer or coordinator, my role is sort of as um it's twofold I'm the in between between the director and the cast. I work as the primary creator of the intimate action. And that does not just mean anything that's sensual or sexual. It can be material that is triggering or uncomfortable or is incredibly complex emotionally that could then lead to physical action. So intimacy work is not just about what we colloquially think about as kissing or hugging. Or um, a sexual act. It's far more reaching than that. It really does have to uh, do with our human interaction with one another. And so having a second party in the room that can act as um, the advocate for the cast and their desires and their needs to accomplish the goal of the script or the goal of the director is incredibly important so that the cast doesn't feel any sort of awkwardness or... At times, um, there could be fear of retaliation if they refuse to do what's asked of them. So the job is very complicated. It's not just choreographing a hug or a kiss. It's, It's really spending time Um, learning about the actors and their personalities and their comfort levels and being able to communicate that to the director and then being the person who is in the room creating that work so that the director has the opportunity to observe and not interact, which does a majority of the time make the cast feel more comfortable. And that goes for theater and film. And in film, it's it's a little different than how we operate in theater, but it's always better to have another pair of eyes in the room to help translate what is in a director's brain and what those words on the page are. And also my job is to analyze and research the reasons why the intimate act is in the script and help the cast understand that and take their concerns about the action or the request of action to the director and sometimes to the authors of the scripts.
1: That is such a much more respectful way of working with actors <laughs> that, uh, that that maybe I experienced uh, you know early in my life, and I'm I'm really glad that that people are paying attention.
0: And that work for me, like getting into it, very, came very much uh, naturally because of my background in dance. And as a choreographer, intimacy work is is already so deeply tied to uh dance training uh because we are always in constant contact with each other and so so um bringing it into theater has only been a, um, a it's a very new concept. It's always existed, but it's this new concept that is now being pushed to the forefront and saying we have to have these conversations about intimacy. We have to set um, um, consensual rules about what we will and won't do. But in dance, it's uh, it's just always been there innately because we are always on the verge of touching each other. And that could lead, that could go very wrong, very fast. So I had always had that in my, my practices. And then as we start to have more of these conversations in theater over the last seven years, five to seven years, um, it was a it was this like natural transition for me to start to uh, join productions in that more formal manner of uh, intimacy choreographer or, or on film intimacy coordinator. But for me, it's very, very important. And I'm so glad that there's now uh, support for it and theaters that are really putting that as a primary element.
1: I can understand why that would be the case based on the things that you've said. I mean, we we know that so many times an actor's voice is submerged in those ways because you want to please your director. That I, and I think it's the case for male and female actors. So you just do what you're told to do, no matter how uncomfortable it makes you. So to have someone there to say, but wait, let's make sure that this is not going to, on the scale from, make you a little uncomfortable <laughs> to
0: yes. really trigger yes. you,
1: <laughs> you know what I mean? Um, to, to have that, that safety feature in there is so important. And, uh, and so I'm going to say thank you again, because I think Thanks. that that's very important work to do. So we're going to take a brief intermission, but don't go anywhere, because when we come back for Act Two, we'll be taking questions from our listeners and discussing how Danielle navigates tough transitions in her career and how her work has adapted to the pandemic. Hey, you. Yes, you. Listening to this podcast right now. Have you subscribed to Echo Offstage yet? You won't want to miss next week's episode when I speak with Ariana Cook, Arts Administrator and former Managing Director of Carmia Theatre. Talk about a fierce woman that knows how to move through all of it, and has been through all of it. Even at times when it was
0: a little less receptive to her message, and her—I mean, I might cry—her <laughs> dedication and her ability to move through these conversations is just astounding.
1: But all of these fascinating conversations are only made possible by support from our dedicated donors. Echo Offstage is a production of Echo Theater Dallas, the Southwest premier theatrical organization dedicated to producing works by women plus playwrights. This season of Echo Offstage is made possible by the Ray Charitable Trust, the City of Dallas Office of Arts and Culture, the Echo 100, and our anonymous donor who has generously sponsored our fifth season. We would love to add your name to that list, unless of course you wish to remain anonymous. If you want to support Echo Offstage, you too can sponsor an episode of the podcast or even an entire season. And I will thank you by name on the show or you can remain anonymous. If you cannot donate to the podcast, you can still support our work by reviewing the podcast on your preferred listening platform, which helps new listeners find the show. Or you can share this episode on your social media or tell a friend about Echo Offstage. Word of mouth is still our best advertiser. And make sure to join Echo's email list and follow Echo Theater Dallas on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter for a chance to submit your own questions for our guests and for updates on Echo's other upcoming projects. This fall, Echo Theater is producing the winner of our Big Shout Out International Play Festival, selected out of over 500 submissions. Mark your calendar for the world premiere of Founders Keepers by Aurora Belkey. Directed by Caroline Hamilton at the Bathhouse Cultural Center in Dallas, Texas on September 16, 2022. Set in the near future, with democracy crumbling and Washington, D.C. in flames, Founders Keepers follows a group of fifth grade girls who are tasked by the government to rewrite the U.S. Constitution. Friendship, power, and zit cream collide in this fresh, vulnerable, hilarious comedy about what it means to grow up in a broken democracy running Thursday through Saturday at the Bathhouse Cultural Center from September 16th through October 8th, 2022. For tickets and other information, visit echotheater.org. Tickets on sale starting Friday, August 26th. In the meantime, be sure to support other productions in the DFW area. This week's shout-out spotlight shines on Undermain Theater's production of Lonesome Blues by Akeen Babatunde and Alan Governor from September 1st through 8th. It explores the life and songs of the legendary bluesman, blind Lemon Jefferson, who was discovered on a street corner in the Deep Ellum section of Dallas in 1925. Undermain brings the legend, played by J. Dontre Davis, back to his origins. Tickets are available on undermain.org. And now back to this week's interview. Welcome back to Act Two of Echo Offstage. I'm talking with Danielle Giorgio. So I have a a listener question for you from Lauren. What activities or exercises, ooh, I love this question, would you recommend for actors who are trying to get more in touch with their bodies?
0: Ooh, that is good. Um, Oh, I would say that any physical activity that you Enjoy will get you inside of your body, and 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 that doesn't mean like take a dance class or take a yoga class. If you like to go on leisurely walks or hot summer whatever fill in the blank walk you want to go on, take it. Make it a habit. Like carve out those thirty minutes for yourself or however much time you have, and do it every single day. Um, and it and um, any, any any kind of it can be like, you know, I really want to, to make 30 second videos of myself every single day doing any activity. It can be incredibly mundane. It could be a full like rearranging the socks in your sock drawer. That is still a physical activity that it helps you understand kinetically a repeated action. And the more you create those kind of physical habits in your daily life, the more connected with your body you're going to be. Um, I think it can be really prohibitive when people are told you have to take yoga, you have to take a dance class, you you got to walk on a treadmill, you have to do all these quote unquote physical exercises. You don't need to to, be, to physically understand your body. You just need to create habits. And once you you do it, and you, your body starts to find joy in it because it's comfortable. It'll then become more comfortable and more joyful when you expand to try to do more complicated physical activities. It's just a retraining of of the brain. And, and habit building and habit forming is the best way to do that. Um, but really, it's just finding it can be like every... And well, don't, don't. I was gonna say water your plants, but don't water your plants every day because they'll die. Um, but you know, just when you're making your coffee in the morning, uh, make it a dance, like have fun, and then the you will physically start to understand yourself better. Um, but you don't have to do uh, these prescribed things that like social media tells you you gotta do. Please don't.
1: <laughs> <laughs> oh my goodness! Yes. And that, that really does make a lot of sense. I mean, I, when I was thinking about folding clothes, so I'm crazy. I enjoy folding clothes. I like the I way. In,
0: I love it. <laughs> I love laundry day.
1: Laundry day is my thing, too. And, and, you know, there's nothing quite like a fluffy towel when you're folding it. So, so any physical activity that can bring you some joy, just do that thing. Mm-hmm. And then let your mind imagine other things that can go along with it. Mm-hmm. I like mm-hmm. that. I again. So for our listeners, if you would like to have a question featured on our next episode on Echo Offstage, be sure to follow Echo Theater Dallas on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at Echo Theater Dallas and watch our stories. So what is a piece of professional advice that you would give a new creative about making their art into their career?
0: That is a tough question. I would tell somebody to do it. It is perfectly okay to be afraid to do it. And it is a justifiable emotion. It's scary to put yourself out there as an artist. It's probably one of the most terrifying things that you can do because it's incredibly vulnerable. And you are exposing yourself and your story to everyone and criticism, but you should do it because you never know what's going to happen. And if you don't try, then how, how, how can you know what could come? And so I, and I tell this to my students and I say, take the opportunities. If someone offers you something and it seems like a valid opportunity, right? Like do your research. Don't just like, say yes to anything, but do your research. And if it, if it seems legit, try it and never be afraid to say you don't know how to do something. Be honest with people and say, This task that you're asking me to do, I understand how to do this part of it, but the this other part, I, I don't know. Can you please advise? Like, do you have any guidance? Because the moment you free yourself of obligation to be perfect, I think is the time that you'll find the most success. And the moment that you can say, like, I tried. I failed. I'm going to try again. And the next time I'm going to fail better at it. So I guess it's kind of twofold. It's like, Take the opportunity, be honest. And then if and when you fail at it, because eventually failure will come, it's not a bad thing. It's just the opportunity to fail better the next time. And that's also a Samuel Beckett idea. I can't get rid of the man. He lives next to me. <laughs> um, but it's a beautiful idea of like owning your failure and um, Knowing that eventually you're going to be really good at something.
1: That is both great advice and a lovely thought. Thank you. <laughs> so you mentioned before our interview that you're in a transitional period of your career. How do you navigate uncertain times in your artistic career? Which is, was a great question. <laughs> provided by you. <laughs> <laughs>
0: I I mean, I think I'm, I don't know what I'm doing and I could really use some advice. Like, you know, you can set yourself up in, in ways and you can build so much infrastructure around you. And then one day you realize you don't want it anymore or it just doesn't work anymore. And learning how to deconstruct everything you've, you've built for yourself and the safety nets and uh, the walls um, that you've built up around yourself. When you start to realize that you want to knock them down, it's difficult because it feels I mean you're starting from round zero again and having to relearn all that confidence that it took to get you to this other point is a challenge and I think that it's important for people to know that it's okay to to not have the answer and not know what your next step's going to be and you know those days when you just need to like cry for hours like cry for hours I'm like, I'm personally so sick of of like having to feel like I've got to be strong at all times um, and I'm not allowed to be an emotional person because I've had to for so long have that persona. And it's like, you know what? I'm exhausted. Look, I'm tired. I'm sad. I'm confused. I'm lost. And that's all right. Because eventually I'll figure my way out of it. It just, I I can't predict when that's going to be. And that's, you know, that's really hard because you're told that you need a plan and you need to have the answers and, um... So just I'm personally learning to to uh, be okay with not having an answer.
1: Um, Yeah, I I think that's also great advice, again, for for any professional, you know, young professional, mid-career, whatever, wherever you are, because if we take a lesson from the earth, everything goes fallow for a little while and it's a time of renewal. And if you yeah. don't take those times of renewal, then you don't get to grow when the growing season comes again. So come on, people. It's right there in front of you is all I'm saying. I mean,
0: ex- Exactly, exactly. And it's like nobody reminds you of that. Like nobody gives you that out because you're told you got to keep working. You got to keep going. Breaks are not allowed because if you take a break, people will forget about you. And it's like, you know what? If I got to take the break, I need it because I might not survive if I don't. And you don't want that person working with you.
1: And there you have said it. I mean, that's, that's just... It's both common sense and wisdom, if you know the distinction that I'm making, because it's mm-hmm. where we, you know, it's, it's where we would love to be able to live our lives. But sometimes we just get so caught up in the what's the next thing, what's the next thing, what's the next thing. You don't take time for that renewal and we all need it. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. You've described yourself as a person whose strongest characteristic is the ability to pick yourself up over and over again. So tell us. <laughs> how that ability has helped your career and and also tell us if there's any times that it has impeded your creativity
0: oh um I'll answer the last part first. (laughs) Um, Many times it has impeded my creativity because I am my own worst enemy. Like having this ability to pick myself up over and over again is both a strength and a weakness because sometimes I'm doing it when I really should just take a break. I should stay down and I should take that nap my body needs. Instead of pushing myself to the breaking point where I just can't function anymore, I should I should listen a little bit more. It's like, here I am, this kinesthetic learner, learner who is a physical body expert. And sometimes I deny my body what it needs. And I'm doing a lot of personal work to overcome that desire to always be. that's a lot of unlearning and relearning that I have to do. And so at times it is, it does get in my way because I feel like I got to keep working. I got to keep working. And inside it's like, I don't want, I can't, I can't, I don't want to, I can't do it. So I'm having those battles. But it's been this really great thing for me because on the flip side, knowing that the reason why I can pick myself up all the time is because I do believe in myself and I trust myself. And I actually have a lot of respect and love for myself. And that is what motivates me like when the things come from all angles and you're blindsided and uh, it just feels like everything's against you, I I know that it's not personal. I know that those situations that are coming at me from all angles doesn't have to do with me. Those people, those entities, those situations, they're coming from their own perspectives and standpoints and opinions, but that has nothing to do with me. And the, the moment and the day that I realized that, I was like, I am free. I am the owner of my opinions and ideas and thought. And hey, not everyone's going to like you. And also the moment I realized you're not going to be everyone's best friend. Not everyone's going to like you. I felt like a brand new person. I was like, hey, it's going to be okay. I'll find my place.
1: Free from the obligation of putting a smile on everybody's face. They can be responsible for their own smiles. Thank you very much. (laughs) Yeah, Yeah, that's great. That is great. So our theme for this season of our podcast is reinvention. And as theaters are returning to live in-person productions, we have all been here. We've had to rediscover and reinvent the process of making in-person theater again. So during lockdown, you spearheaded some really innovative pandemic performances, and we have just got to talk about that. What did you learn from those projects?
0: Oh, I learned that I was uh, more capable at certain things than I ever thought I could be, and that I maybe was a a tech head and I didn't know I could be. I I had this time. I mean, I, it was like that forced break. And in that break, I was like, oh, I got all these ideas. Let's do one. Let's figure out a way to do this. I'm going to learn how to edit film in a way I never thought possible. One of the first projects that we did was a feature film. I have worked on feature film, but I've never made a feature film. Made that. And I did. I learned all uh, how to use a green screen, how to edit through a green screen, all these after effects, things that I uh, conceptually knew about but didn't know I could do it. And now I'm like, wow, this opens up a whole new world for me and how I can make video. Um, And I have all this new equipment that I never thought that I would own at my disposal. And I was like, who am I? Why do I have a green screen and basically like a sound studio? What is going on in my life? And I feel like a lot of uh, performers found themselves with like, screens and microphones and new cameras, and they're like, why? Never thought I'd need this. I do live performance. But yeah, I just, I found that I was like, I wasn't scared to take risks during the pandemic, because it felt like it didn't matter. There were no more rules. And so like, do whatever you want. And so I did whatever I wanted. In some ways, it worked out really well.
1: (laughs) So you picked up a computer and said, um, After Effects, okay, I'm going to be the queen of Mogurts. And... (laughs) Basically, basically. Yeah. And and do you work in (laughs) Premiere? What's what do you edit in?
0: I was using when I had the license of Final Cut. But, you know, like academically, I have it at school, but I couldn't access it there. (laughs) Um, So like I would, you know, I downloaded like. Filmora, which is basically a type of Premiere, Premiere Light, it was a more affordable version of it. So if like anyone's ever looking for an affordable version of a video editing tool, uh, Filmora is there for you. Uh, it You know, it has it has what it has and um, you can do a lot with it, um, but you can download, you know, the Adobe suites and plug them on in and do what you need to do with them. And there's so many YouTube tutorials that at this point, it's like if you have an idea and you want to try it out, you should try it. It'll cost you a little bit. But try things, you know, um, and yeah. So I think my video editing skills definitely jumped from the like more visual art perf- um, performative editing that I was doing as my artistic practice. To now, um, working a little more of a traditional narrative sense. And I love it. Like, it's, it's a whole different type of choreography. I mean, the reason why I, part of my visual art career is videos, is that it is a type of choreography and it's a new way of like applying your directorial skills to it. And I love it.
1: That is fascinating as someone who spent 40 years in television. <laughs> you know, um, to to hear your um, willingness, or maybe even on that continuum, fearlessness about, okay, I'm just going to give it a shot. You know, I'm just going to try this and see what happens. And then to find out that you, that you can add that to your toolbox. And you wouldn't have known if
0: you said no. Exactly. Exactly. So it's a beautiful thing.
1: So what have been some of the challenges for you coming back to in-person performance?
0: Oh, remembering how to... Talk to people in person. That was hard because we got so used to the screen, and because we spent a lot of time with a mask on top of our face. Right. I am a very visual person, and so when I didn't have those visual cues, I I was struggling to uh, to know if the people I was speaking to, am I making a connection? And because we we rely so much on facial expression, I do, and the mask made it very difficult um to to enter into the process of returning to live theater for me because i just i was like are you there hello do yeah. you hear me are are we are we connecting am i am i communicating well enough through my mask but you know it's a learned process and that has become easier with each production there's just like the new stress levels of you know you're so excited and you're ready to do this and you've done all this work to prepare for the production is the production actually going to happen and like having like that it was never a concern in the in in our minds before the pandemic So it was like we're gonna do the show that's what we're here to do But now it's like we're here to do the show, but we might not do the show and but we still have to work towards the end goal, even if that end goal never appears. I mean, sometimes it's really beautiful because it's like, yeah, because we're here to make art and this is it's it's our job, but it's also like something that we love and believe in and cannot live without. So no matter what, we're going to make the art. But then you're like, oh, but I want to show it to people. And like having to rectify the fact that nobody might ever see this and you maybe are just making for yourself can be really debilitating.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Fun days. Yeah. I think that was probably the worst part of, well, let me say it this way. The worst part of the pandemic for me was not being able to know for certain if this project's going to be seen. But it was also, as you said, it was a little freeing because then you do just Let's try this and let's try this, you know, because because some of the barriers are off, I guess. I'm not sure. I'm not sure. But it's something like that.
0: Yeah. Yeah. It is. is just a you could never have written this moment in time.
1: No, no one imagined this coming. <laughs> and so what was that thing that people used to, you say? You, you never expect the Spanish Inquisition. You never expect COVID. No, <laughs> you, never, you never expect COVID. You just don't. So as we as we begin to wrap up, um, I want to ask uh, about your personal adjustment to your post COVID theater practices. What what um, what kind of adjustments have you made at coming coming back? Hopefully, seeing faces is one of them, and I'm with you on that. <laughs> I'm so with you on that. I'm you know I'm a very visually expressive person too, and I like to see a whole face.
0: <laughs> yeah, I think coming back into this, like for my own personal work, I think I'm rethinking how I make work. A lot of times it's very much like the work's going to come in the room. Like I have a concept and we're going to develop it in the room with the performers. But now what COVID did teach me was, you know, all those practices that I do when I'm working as a choreographer or I'm working on a film, it's like outlines, storyboards, preparation. Um, I'm starting to use that now more in my personal practice work that I never did before. And it's like, because I need to have more of a structure in place before I enter into a project now. And I never thought about it before, but COVID really taught me that. It's like, be prepared. Be as prepared as you can be. Because when the curveball comes, you're ready. You're ready for it. So now it's like, even when I'm working on other productions, I'm starting to think more about Let's make sure we have understudies. Let's make sure we have a plan B in place if the original plan and the original cast can't proceed. Let's let's think about those things. And from like a choreographic and intimacy standpoint, I'm really thinking about like asking directors that I'm working with, like, do we really need certain things anymore anymore? Can can the story stand without X, Y, and Z intimate action? If you want it, then let's think about the safest way to do it. Not just like how we're going to choreograph it safely, but how we're going to implement it into the work safely. Let's wait until we, ne- we absolutely have to take our masks off. Now more than ever, I mean, we really have to think from a health and safety standpoint where we never thought about that before because now we're more educated in the trans mission of viruses.
1: We're way more educated than I think we ever wanted to be, but we need to <laughs> stay vigilant because the numbers are rising again. Mm-hmm. And it's just our crazy new normal. So it's mm-hmm. important to, you know, stay on top of those. So I've got two, maybe three more questions for you. Sure, <laughs> sure. Tell us about any artistic project coming up that's putting a smile on your face these days
0: coming up very soon I'm traveling to New York for a film festival where one of my dance films will be shown and this it's a very personal video for me i um I had the opportunity to film it in Cyprus which is my um my home country. This is where my, my family is from. A fr- first generation Cypriot uh, American. So, like, to have the, op- like, the ability to film in the country that I mean, raised me, it, it is who I am. It's the place that I feel most like myself. It's really important. So, having the chance to like, show this means a lot to me. Oh, that's um, fabulous. So, yeah. I'm really excited for that. The title of the film is Salt Bone.
1: Can you elaborate? That's a very interesting title.
0: So the film is very much about my experience of being disconnected from my homeland. Um, So my bones exist in Cyprus. And I filmed a majority of it in a dehydrated salt lake, which is just outside of my family home. There's this a big salt lake that in the winter is stunning, full of water, full of flamingos. It's incredible. But in the summer, it's it's just a, a dry desert landscape. But that salt is very much who I am. And and the bones of me exist in this country. It's where I come from. And the salt of the earth and bones of my ancestors. Um, it's a salt bone. <laughs> I'm really excited for that. And I don't know, I, I have a lot of Open possibilities now, and I am excited to sort of refine myself as an artist and the type of work that I want to make moving forward into this new era of me. And so I'm just really open to whatever's gonna come. And if a job comes along and I get to choreograph something cool, if I get to work on intimacy, great. If I get to direct something, awesome. Um I'm just sort of like leaving myself open for whatever possibilities come.
1: It's a great spirit of adventure.
0: I mean, look, we only get to do this life once. So I yeah. could I could live I could live in I could live in the darkness and I could wallow in uh, confusion, or I could just yeah. leave my my heart and mind open. So I'm going to choose the latter. <laughs>
1: there you are, amen. So, what is, in your opinion, one thing? And this is a part of Echo's mission, absolutely, for women. But what is one thing that theaters, all theaters, can do to support work by women plus artists?
0: Program them, mm-hmm. p- put them in your season, and if the play is written by a woman, woman plus, maybe look for. Hire a woman, woman plus director, creative team. Allow those voices to shine and open your space up. Remove yourself from impeding upon that story being told and let it be told by people who understand it in ways that maybe a male body never could. Again, common sense
1: that is remarkably like wisdom. My my final question for you, Danielle, and I have had a delightful time talking to you. Thank you so much.
0: Yeah, yeah this has been so much fun.
1: <laughs> so I want to ask you, who is a woman in theater? Who inspires you and why?
0: Well, there's all the... Uh, All the people I named earlier have just been so inspirational and just like wonderful support system for me. And maybe some of them don't even realize how much they mean to me, but maybe they're going to realize now. And it can be like the smallest bit of kindness that they've shown me that has just been like, oh, oh, yeah, we're in this. We're in this together. And even if our paths don't cross for a long time, that moment that we met and that moment that they smiled or said a kind word or shared space with me and I felt safe is something that well I will never forget and I've I've carried a lot of those memories with me for over a decade. So, I mean, yeah, I all all of them that I named earlier have just been like super great and I meet people every day that I'm just like, yeah, wow, I can't wait to work with you again. And so it's like it's actually a little bit difficult for me to like just be like it's these people because I'll meet a new person and like I I recently I've developed a relationship with Rebecca Lowry who's a music director and you know Our paths have crossed, kind of, sort of, but we connected, and 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 now it's like I have this support system with this person who is a great musical director and a and a a great person, an advocate for musical theater. And she invited me to be a part of a panel of musical writers to talk about collaboration and direction. I was like, wow, thanks for that opportunity, because I'm sitting on a panel with some like really incredible artists who have really solid careers. And I'm like, this is incredible, like that I get to have this networking opportunity. And this person whose path I've crossed with only a few times is like, so willing to take a chance on me. Um, So I mean, she's that's like somebody in my like, recent interaction that has been like, really wonderful. And so I just like, I can't wait to meet more people. And create those relationships. And, and it's like now, Catherine, you and I have met. And it's like, oh, here's this other great like relationship. And I know that's a roundabout way to answer the question, but I named so many people earlier that I'm like, there's so many more. Well, <laughs> and, and, and,
1: and, again, it, it sort of speaks to your openness to the next thing that's going to happen. And that is a joyful way to live a life and a great, great for us. Great thing for us to see. Thanks. Thank you so much. For, uh, for being with us today. It has been a delightful conversation. Where can our listeners find out more about you and things that you have going on?
0: They can follow me on Instagram, on my personal account, which is at Daniel Giorgio, or if they want to learn more about our bizarre, wacky, weird dance theater that we make, they can follow us on at DGDG dance group on Instagram. We're also on Facebook.
1: All right, fantastic. Fantastic. So, Danielle, I'm sure our listeners would love to get a chance to see some of your work locally. Do you have anything coming up in the Dallas area?
0: I do. I will be the intimacy choreographer for Between Riverside and Crazy at Stage West, which opens in August, um, August 18th. And then I will also be creating choreography for Lonesome Blues at Undermain Theatre, which opens in early September
1: fantastic. I know folks are going to want to take advantage of the opportunity to see your wonderful work. Thank you so much for that, Danielle. This has been a delightful conversation. So glad that you could be with us. And we want to thank all of you for joining us for this episode of Echo Offstage Theater Women Speak. Please be sure to follow Echo Theater Dallas on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. And please submit your own questions for our guests and for exciting news and updates on upcoming podcasts, readings, and productions. You've been listening to Echo Offstage, Theatre Women Speak, a production of Echo Theatre in Dallas, Texas, a nonprofit theatre dedicated to solely producing works by women plus playwrights. I'm your host, Katherine Whiteman. Our podcast manager and producer is Eric Berg. Our audio engineer and editor is Jonathan Villalobos. Graphics and social media by Lauren Floyd. Our theme music is by Lynn Barnett with Brent Nance. Executive produced by Kateri Kale, Managing Artistic Director at Echo Theater. Find out more about Echo and our mission to champion the diverse voices of women plus artists at echotheater.org. And follow us on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter at Echo Theater Dallas. Find these links and more info about today's guest in the show notes. Going dark. Thank you, Dark. Thank you, Dark. Danielle, Georgia, dance group. Let's talk a little bit more about Danielle Giorgio. Uh, (laughs) That's going to be the outtake that we use (laughs) for the, yeah.